Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. And this time we have back formally the podcast's favourite guest who has been pipped by a couple of other more recent guests, but bidding to regain his crown, Professor Tim Bale. Lovely to have you back on the show, Tim. Thank you very much, Mark. That is, of course, the only reason I'm here talking to you, but thanks. The other reason, of course, is Tim has a new, I'm not sure if it's a book or a pamphlet. It's somewhere between the two. It is, I'm just having a look now, 65 pages long, a slim volume out called Brexit, An Accident Waiting to Happen, why David Cameron called the 2016 referendum and why he lost it. And as I was just saying to you, Tim, before we started recording, I think actually the first half of that question, to my mind, is even more interesting than the second half, because mm-hmm. there's been quite a lot said about why the referendum result went the way it did. But I think you highlight a really quite interesting and sort of neglected factor about why he called the referendum. But before we plunge into that, do you want to just say a little bit about what your the overall story is, what the overall picture is that your book paints? Yes, I mean, on the first one, it was provoked in some ways by reading David Cameron's accounts of why he um, did what he did. And I go into a fair amount of detail in that in, in the uh, the book. He plays down the idea that, you know, concerns about immigration and certainly concerns among Conservative MPs about the rise of UKIP made any difference to his decision. He seems to suggest that he regarded a referendum, an in-out referendum on the EU as somehow inevitable because concern about the EU was rising among the British public more generally and it was the democratic thing to do. And anyway, the way that Europe was changing meant that there had to be some legitimation, if you like, of Britain's consent to those changes if if we were to you know go on with our relationship and indeed stay in the eu i actually think that that is self-justificatory nonsense it's very clear i think when you look at the situation he was facing in 2011 2012 which was when he made the decision the things he's he tries to downplay in other words concerns about immigration among the british public and concerns among conservative mps in particular about not only membership of the eu and what that might mean for Britain with regard to, for example, having to help bail out countries, but also with regard to how much traction UKIP was getting, were the immediate and approximate causes of his decision. And I I think what's also quite interesting, and I go into this in the book, is how much debate there was behind closed doors and how restricted that debate was. However, it didn't seem to include the cabinet. It did seem to include people like Michael Gove, George Osborne and a a few other kind of key advisors. And interestingly, Gove, of course, who became very much a you know, face of the Leave campaign was was against having a referendum, which some people may know because he thought it was unnecessarily divisive and didn't need to be done. And George Osborne also thought it was a bad idea because he thought it was actually quite a risky move. So, you know, the, the book goes into a bit more detail as to to why the referendum was called. And then, as you say, it moves on to why the referendum was lost, which is in some ways a more familiar story. But I I think, you know, quite a lot of the academic research is worth summarising there and, you know, summarising in some ways, which I try to do, you know, the the various reasons why in the end the, the referendum was lost, albeit, you know, fairly narrowly. And I think thinking about you know David Cameron's accounts, as you say, in his memoirs, he really downplays the influence of Tory backbench MPs on him. And I think you do a very thorough demolition job on the version he gives and says, actually, no, the views of Tory backbench MPs were really important. Now, and perhaps in part because you're demolishing David Cameron's version of events, 
there's nonetheless an implication there that Cameron at least, and maybe even you as well to a degree, feel like there's something wrong about a party leader admitting that, well, I did something because my MPs wanted me to do it, when there are definitely ways of framing that, where you think, well, that's sort of what a leader does. And, and I think it's one of these classic things where if the MPs want a leader to do something you agree with, you think a leader listening to the MPs is great. And if you what the MPs want them to do something you don't agree with, you think the leader. But 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 yeah, I just wonder what was your what's your take on? Because obviously, you know, with your sort of you know years, decades, dare one say, of expertise at looking at political systems and so on, is I mean, is there really any problem with a leader saying, yeah, my MPs want me to do that, so I'm listening to them? No, I don't think so. If there's been a conversation in some ways between the leader and those MPs, but I don't think that's what you had between David Cameron and his Eurosceptics. I think really ever since David Cameron became leader of the Conservative Party and, you know, suggested he wanted his party to, you know, stop banging on about Europe, as he, he basically, rather than engaging with his MPs, rather than arguing with his MPs, sought to, I guess, you know, as George Osborne put it, you know, throw them some red meat now and then, hope that that would keep them happy. And as a result, what happened was that he continually appeased and appeased and appeased, and it, and it didn't work. So there was never real engagement. And in some ways, the fact that his MPs felt the way they did, I think was to some extent down to that, to, to the fact that, you know, the argument was never made by, by those who were convinced that, you know, Britain's best interests were involved staying in the EU. But then, of course, that in some ways, is a microcosm of the, the whole problem in mm. Britain, in the sense that those who believed in a, a European future for Britain or a European present at the time, obviously, for Britain, you know, never really made the argument. They just felt, I think, fatalistically, it wasn't an argument that could be won, so it had to be suppressed. And why do you think, then, that Cameron is so reluctant to say, uh, yes, it was due to the MPs, because because mm. in a way, I mean, you know, the point at which he wrote his memoirs, mm. I think even at that point, a sense of being able to shift a bit of a blame to others would have, I mean, certainly his book overall doesn't seem to be full of him, you know, voluntarily accepting the blame for things. You know, it is, as with <laughs> most political memoirs, to be fair, very much, you know, there is a bit of self-justification mm. and butt shifting. So, so what, why, yeah, why was it that he sort of wanted to bury the idea rather than... Yeah. I mean, I... I think this comes back to your original question, really, which is I think leaders do seem to see it as a sign of weakness in some ways. I think, you know, it has come about for various reasons that standing up to your party is seen as some kind of virility test. It is seen as a sign of a, a strong leader and a capable leader. So the idea that you have been bounced, as it were, into a decision by your colleagues, I think, you know, makes you look like a weak leader. And I think that's one of one of the reasons, actually, that he's he's less keen on admitting, you know, the 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 the, the role that the parliamentary played in in pushing him towards a referendum. And on the on the question of you know, blame. I mean, I think you're, you're right. He He's reluctant to blame the parliamentary party as a whole, but he's certainly not reluctant to blame particular members true, yeah, of the political true. party when it comes to yeah. his political party, I should say, when it comes to why they lost the referendum. You know, and it, he makes it very clear that he felt very betrayed by Gove, by Johnson, and not just by them, by, you know, Penny Morden, for example, Pretty Patel. You know, there's a whole roster of people who he feels very badly let down by. But even that, I think, involves a degree of self-justification because he, you know, he 
he elides the question of whether he should have suspended collective cabinet responsibility, for example. And there was a debate about that. You know, George Osborne made it very, very clear that he thought that was a really bad idea. George Osborne felt that, you know, there would be some resignations, but actually it would probably hold some people in, yeah. particularly those who are ambitious, onto the Remain side. And, and as a result, you know, we would see in some ways what happened in you know, the, the, the referendum in the 1970s, whereby, yes, there were some people on the Labour side who campaigned against Britain's membership. And of course, there were some on the Conservative side as well, but they were far more marginal than, than the, the people who eventually came for leave. And of course, you know, the, the, the very large minority of Conservative MPs who did so. And I think that leads us on to the po- point I was referring to at the beginning that really caught my eye in this book is that The conclusion I drew from that first half about why Cameron called the referendum was that, as you've said, he basically called the referendum because there was a large tranche of hardcore Eurosceptic MPs in his party who wanted a referendum. Mm. And therefore, also, it means that probably a referendum was inevitable, because even if he had not called one at that point, if you had that larger tranche of Tory backbench MPs and frontbench MPs as well, of, of MPs in general, at some point there would have been a moment of leverage, whether it was a leadership election or a leader in trouble. You know, at some point that force, and therefore the cause of at least the Brexit referendum, and one of the causes of Brexit, is all of those selection meetings years mm. previously. Ironically, mostly in southern England. <laughs> in often Tory safe seats in, you know, maybe even in areas that voted Remain, where those people who ended up that big wodge of, uh, you know, Tory Eurosceptic MPs, when they originally got selected for Parliament, and therefore, in a sense, the story of why Brexit happened is, it's certainly fun to write the story about, say, Michael Gove's involvement in it, because it's full of, you know, drama and twists and turns and betrayal. But slightly more mundanely, the Tory members in Surrey Heath who first selected as an MNP. Actually, it's there the story of the of the creators of Brexit in many ways. And almost but you know, almost overwork, you know, completely it's fair to say that Tory MP Tory members who vote in selection meetings are not part of the left behind. You know. No, uh, that's and, and so the story about Brexit being this populist revolt left behind, in a way, is missing half the picture, which is it only happened because of what all of these, you know, Tory members years previously in affluent parts of the country had decided to do. Yes. And I mean, that raises a really interesting question. And, and, you know, that sort of long term structural question isn't one I go to into, you know, as much as perhaps I could have done in, in the in the book. But, you know, uh, and that question is, well, what happened to Conservative Party members to make them so Eurosceptic? Mm. And because if we remember back in the 1970s, you know, the. The, the party was the the party of Europe, yeah. uh, and I think and indeed even under Thatcher, I, she didn't face significant internal opposition over the single market, did she? As I recall, no, no. I mean, what what really does seem to have been the crux, as you'll be aware, was Maastricht, really, and in particular, I think you know the the defenestration of Margaret Thatcher, and then her clear opposition to Maastricht, then campaigning for a referendum. Uh, on that and other, if you like, celebrity Eurosceptics joining her. Uh, And I think what we see is a kind of push and pull, really. You you get more and more Conservative MPs coming out, not necessarily for Brexit, but for the Eurosceptic call. That, I think, does appeal to some members. The fact that it appeals to some members means that some MPs or some people wanting to become MPs then 
present themselves as perhaps more Eurosceptic than they are, or, or indeed Eurosceptics take the opportunity to, to get selected. And there's this sort of rolling snowball process, I think, over about 20 years, which, which ends up with, as you say, a parliamentary party that is deeply Eurosceptic. I mean, I, I seem to remember in the academic study of the 2010 Conservative Parliamentary Party, I think it was only about 2% were <laughs> classified as Europhiles. And then there were just, you know, Eurosceptics of varying degrees. But even then, interestingly, the, you know, the, the, the minority of Eurosceptics were Brexiteers, or what we now call Brexiteers. You know, the, the, the Better Off Out Brigade was still a minority, even among Eurosceptics then. So there was some movement, clearly, after, after 2010. And, you know, it's, it's worth exploring, as I do in the book, I think, you know, why that was the case. And I guess the other conclusion to draw from that is the point that Michael Crick often makes. Indeed, he's got an excellent Twitter account, which I'll include in the show notes, mm. on this theme of the importance of parliamentary selections, mm. that these are a relatively hidden and obscure part of our democratic system. Yes, political scientists actually refer to them as the secret garden of oh, the secret, party yeah. politics. That's right. Yeah, yeah because, you know, it, it's, it's those selections that were going mostly unnoticed that helped you know, help help shape the Tory party. But I guess the other thing that did is 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 the way that Cameron ideologically doesn't seem to have reshaped who the Tories were selecting. So with his A-list and other schemes, he was massively successful. And one could say this is perhaps his biggest liberal, small L liberal legacy of making the Tory parliamentary party much more diverse, particularly mm. on ethnic grounds, such as we now have, for example, the third ethnic minority Chancellor of the Exchequer in, in a row, and all three have been Conservative. You know, it's it's quite striking what the A-list did achieve in one sense. But unlike, say, battles in the Labour Party over parliamentary selections, where part of it absolutely is whoever's in power trying to get people who ideologically agree with them as the next generation of MPs, Cameron's A-list scheme doesn't, you know, doesn't seem to, you know, he, he wanted to stop banging on about Europe, but he then didn't use the A-list as a mechanism. to try. No, to... that's a really good point. I mean, in some ways, it was all about identity politics <laughs> rather than ideology. Cameron, the first identity politician. Yes, I mean, ironically, I think that's the case because, you know, you have, you know, someone like Priti Patel, for example, selected, Liz Truss selected, you know, who, who are all, um, Andrea Leadsom selected who are all clearly, you know, very Eurosceptic and in the end, you know, have, have become, you know, quite hardline Brexiteers. But they were, in part anyway, you know, part of that, that movement towards getting more women into the party, getting more people from ethnic minorities into the party. You're, you're absolutely right. There was no real attempt to, I think, to, to police the ideology, if you like, of, of, of who was, was coming in. It, it, it really depended more on what you look like uh, and your your gender than what you actually thought. There, there wasn't very much. A, and that might have just been complacency on Cameron's part. Why do you think that was? Was it that it didn't occur to him or he didn't want to do it or he wouldn't have been able to do it? What's, what's the reason why there was no ideological... I mean, I, I think there was a degree of complacency and I think there was a degree to which he assumed that if you were female, if you were from an ethnic minority, then you would share his socially liberal views almost by definition. And uh, I, I think he felt, particularly after, you know, Gordon Brown failed to call that election in, in 2007, fairly secure uh, in, in, you know, the leadership position. And I didn't really feel that any of these people were going to, in, in the long term, you know, constitute a threat. After all, he would 
he assumed soon be prime minister, he would be able to use his powers of patronage to, you know, put these people in place and they wouldn't actually cause him too much trouble. So I, I think probably, probably characteristically, there was a degree of complacency on, on Cameron's part there. And also, I guess he wasn't that ideological in a way. I mean, you know, he had, in one sense, very distinct political views. He was mm. you know, definitely not a Labour supporter. You know, he was mm. very clearly a Conservative. But he wasn't really deep into discussing political ideology and philosophy, was he? You know, I, I think the thing he really got right as Tory leader, and he got right, I mean, you know, to his credit, he said this when running for Tor the Tory leadership was, we need to change. You know, mm. we keep on losing. We can't just appeal to ourselves. We need to appeal to a wider audience. But I don't think he ever really worked out what it was they needed to change to, other than some sort of general sense of being modern. Mm. Or perhaps yeah. because he didn't have that real, it wasn't like there was a real set of ideological no. things that he wanted to no. drop. And, and I think there's a really interesting counterfactual, really, which is, you know, what would have happened had the global financial crisis not occurred? And David Cameron and George Osborne had won the 2010 election, perhaps in coalition, perhaps not in coalition, and not really needed or felt they needed to do austerity. What, what would they then have done? Because in some senses, austerity gave them back their kind of Thatcherite purpose, their Thatcherite mojo, you might say. But had they not needed to do it, would they have really gone in that direction? They certainly weren't suggesting they were going to go in that direction before the, you know, the, the crash in 2007, 2008. Yeah, and, and I guess, you know, particularly for, from a Lib Dem perspective, now, there might be a few Lib Dems in the audience listening to this. I guess the other thing that symbolises that sort of ideological softness or disinterest, perhaps, from, from Cameron is the way that he talks now about one of his biggest and proudest achievements being legalising same-sex marriage. Mm. And while it's certainly true he was prime minister when that happened, and he, in the end, was you know willing to have it on the government timetable and all of that, it only got onto the government agenda because you know, Lynn Featherstone, the Lib Dem minister at the time, there was... Had Lynn not been a minister and decided to actually go off, you know, off book in that sense, it wasn't in the manifesto, it wasn't in the coalition agreement, had she not decided to pick that issue up and run with it, there was no sign from the Conservatives that that was something they would have added in to the agenda of the government. No, and, and in fact, of course, the majority of Conservative MPs voted against. And yet Cameron now says, you know, his one of his greatest achievements was something he actually showed no particular sign of wanting to do. It's very... Very curious. Yeah. So maybe we well, should... when you haven't got that many achievements to your name, or one of the biggest ones is actually yeah. crashing out of the European Union, perhaps that's it. It would, be, it would be cruel to say it must be desperate when you have to turn to nicking Lib Dem achievements to bolster your own <laughs> Palmares. But maybe we should move on to the second half of the book. And I found it a really useful summary of, as it were, the state of play of research into the different arguments over why... Uh, when when the referendum was called, why then the Leave side won? And I guess the, the main controversy that still is rumbling through on that is how much was it a vote about immigration? So what's your take on how important were people voting Leave? Well, I guess there are three different arguments, aren't there? There's the, there's the argument that it wasn't about immigration. There's the argument that it was about immigration and people wanted less of it. And there's the argument that people wanted control over immigration but weren't actually that fussed about the numbers as long as you had control. And the difference between those two subsets of the anti-immigration interpretation is actually very relevant now yes. happened yes. because it, you know, migration numbers haven't been falling in the way that I think a lot of people were mm. claiming they would, mm. but the government does have more control. You know, mm. it, it can set more rules. So, so yeah, so which of those three 
do you think is was the prime cause? Well, I think we can dismiss the first one. I mean, I think the idea that the, <laughs> the referendum result had nothing to do with immigration is nonsense. I mean, you, you can see very clearly that you know people were very concerned about immigration, in part, I think, because Cameron had made completely impossible promises in the 2010 manifesto to reduce it to the tens of thousands, which clearly hadn't been honoured. He'd also made the mistake of claiming that he would be able to get something in his deal with the EU, which would mean, you know, more control and perhaps, you know, re- reductions in, in immigration. So I think that you know, you're right. The debate really comes down to, you know, whether it was simply about control or whether it was also uh, about re- reduction. And as you say, there's a very interesting debate going on right now, actually, that there's a, a, a a great piece by Jonathan Portis in, in Byline Times, in which he, he, he actually takes on Neil O'Brien, the Conservative MP, and Eric Kaufman, who's a, a, an academic, and, and, and suggests, among other things, that actually reduction wasn't you know, an explicit promise on the part of the Brexiteers. I mean, I, I, I think it's right to some extent, but I think always implicit in the control argument was control for a purpose. And that purpose was to, to reduce immigration or at least to stop any great rise in immigration. And if people think back to the campaign, there was a clear attempt on the part of Leave to suggest that unless we took back control, then actually we would be flooded. 77 million people coming from Turkey, for example, which you know featured very, very largely in the last few weeks of, of, of the campaign. And if you look at some of the things that Leave campaign strategists were saying, in particular Dominic Cummings, you know, there was absolutely no, no quarter given on that. You know, they were absolutely determined to, to use immigration as much as possible. And, and Cameron, you know, I think when he talks about how he lost the campaign is, is very clear about that. You know, it was it was uh, you know, very much front and centre of the Leave campaign and something that he found very difficult to counter, in part because, of course, he had formerly close colleagues who were beating him up on the issue, in part because he was being advised that were they to try and tackle immigration, they would essentially be playing on Leave's territory and it would be better to stick with the economy because that's where the, the, the Remain argument was was strongest. And, you know, it, in part because it helped to mobilise and bring into the Leave camp voters who might otherwise, you know, have stayed at home, for example. And this question of mobilisation became extremely important. But given that, I mean, so immigration numbers haven't, as you say, fallen in the way mm. that a lot of Brexit campaigners were talking about or implying. And but also we've not, you know, we've not seen the you know, successor to UKIP in various guises have any real political success since Brexit's happened, either, which is perhaps what you might expect to have happened if people were expecting a drop. If they voted for something, they voted for it. The drop doesn't happen. So why isn't there? Is it that just we've all been distracted by things like COVID, that there isn't a political backlash from Mm. anti-immigration levers yet? Well, I think the the yet is quite important. And I guess one thing I I might say if I were having an argument with Jonathan about this is that I I think it's quite difficult to tell at the moment because you've, you've just hinted there we are living in very unusual times and have been really for the last you know, two or three years in some ways. Jonathan makes the point that what's happened essentially is that EU uh, immigration has dropped, but those immigrants have been replaced by, or those citizens, I should say, have been replaced by migrants coming in from very typically South Asia and, and to some extent from Africa as, as well. But, I mean... <laughs> 
I, I think if you if you think about how COVID showed how stretched, uh, for example, some of our public services mm-hmm. were, and in particular the health service, I think that probably help people realize that you know there are some sectors of the economy that very badly need migrants and the same might even be happening with something like hospitality now it has to be said but also i mean it is inevitably true that you know people don't have infinite space for issues so if they are distracted a by covid at the beginning and now by this massive economic problem i'm afraid immigration is almost bound to drop down in in salience and, and i mean one of the one of the problems when we talk about immigration, and this has been a problem when, when people research, for example, the rise of the far right, yeah. is because of the, you know, the impact of the 1930s on our consciousness. We, we have this assumption that somehow um, bad economic times equates with people really, really worrying about migration. In fact, if anything, it's good economic times <laughs> that equate with those in, in, in more recent decades because people have you know, more room, as it were, to think about other issues uh, when they're not worrying about, you know, where their next meal is going to come from or whether, you know, as in this case, you know, they can heat their home. So in some ways, for, for Jonathan's argument to to hold good, I'd like to see it play out in more normal times if we ever get to more normal times. Yeah, I mean, I guess, well, a couple of thoughts prompted by that. One is that, you know, most people, you know, have a, a very impressionistic and you know, not necessarily particularly accurate sense of whether immigration is rising, falling, mm. high, low. You know, it's those views tend not to be based on reading the latest ONS stats every month for a, a few years and deciding what you think the picture is. And therefore, in a way, it's it's how the various other things are performing that forms your view of immigration. And therefore, if housing shortages are top of mind or shortage of GPs, and difficulty getting GP appointments are top of mind. Each of those could point in quite diff- different directions as to whether mm. you think, oh, the problem is we have too much immigration, or the problem is we don't, you know, we don't have enough immigration. And there's, but there do certainly seem to be some longer term trends that are in a generally pro-immigration mm. you know, direction. The sort of the long-term sweep of, but but I guess the big unknown is, I mean, the long-term trends can so easily be trumped by short-term factors you mm. know, on, on an issue like this for a, for a, for a long period of time. I guess one of the things we don't really know is how that changing makeup of where immigrants are coming from, what impact mm. you know, that will make in yeah. that. I mean, in some ways, you know, people might have feel a greater affinity with fellow Europeans and therefore it might feel this wave of immigration is more different. On the other hand, I guess in sort of popular culture, the idea of an Asian couple running your corner shop was fairly normal by the 1970s, if not earlier. Whilst the idea of, you know, every plumber you can ever find, at least where I live, being Polish is a much more recent phenomenon. And therefore, mm. in one in one sense, you know, people are maybe more used to actually immigration from other parts of the world. So I think it's really hard to tell. Yeah. Yeah. People I think will feel this is more different or less different. From yeah, I think. I think that's a really, a really good point. And the other point, of course, is that, you know, people's concerns about immigration are not necessarily endogenous to politics. They, you know, mm. they're um, uh, exogenous, I should say, to politics. They're, they're, you know, they're endogenous. So if, if politicians don't choose to focus on this, and if, for example, newspapers don't choose to focus on this, the media in general doesn't choose to focus on, on this, then it won't be as big an issue. I mean, it clearly it, it's true that, politicians still talk about migration quite a lot but they've narrowed it down to boats coming across the channel 
you know, it, it's no longer necessarily about lots of people coming on visas or family reunification to work, you know, and take our jobs, et cetera, et cetera. It's about this particular problem. And I think that that has made a difference. I mean, what, what politicians talk about and what the media talks about does make a difference mm -hmm. to, you know, how salient a particular issue is. And, and certainly if we go back to the, the referendum, there's absolutely no doubt that the Leave side and all the newspapers that were supporting them talked an awful lot about immigration at the time. And of course, it was quite easy to do so because we had the migrant crisis in 2015, you know, people coming coming across and, and, and boats into, you know, other parts of Europe and then, you know, possibly coming up to, to the UK. And, and people feared that unless we got control of our borders, you know, the same thing would happen to us. And, and I guess that's where politically the danger for the Conservative government really rests is with the channel boat crossings, because although mm. the numbers involved are you know, tragic, on the, if you think about it, on the human scale, in terms of overall migration into this country, it's quite a small, you know, it's a pretty small part of the overall picture. But it's the bit that grabs the headlines and mm. it's the bit that's really hard to alter. You know, mm. the government could change the requirements for work visas at the drop of a hat whether for better or for worse you know it could it could make a, a big difference to the number of people with work visas very easily because mm, it's, mm. it's, a, it's a pretty straightforward you know mechanism there but boats crossing the channel feels like and i think to some extent is something that is very hard for the government to really yeah and, and i think you know when... at least in the short term yeah. that all the short-term efforts Mm. sort of grab the headlines and then don't really deliver the goods. Yeah, it's, and it is and it is problematic for the government because if, you know, your whole thing is you've taken back control and you clearly aren't controlling this particular issue, then, you know, they are, you know, Liz Truss, if she becomes the Prime Minister, you know, is, is going to face the accusation that, you know, David Cameron faced because you made promises and you, you haven't kept them. And, you know, that, I guess in more normal times would mean that somebody like Nigel Farage, you know, would be able to capitalise on this. But it's it's interesting how how the media, for example, seem to drop Nigel Farage completely. <laughs> you know, he, he just doesn't feature as, as much as he, he did back then. You know, he's not such a celebrity. And um, it, it does uh, make me wonder quite what Liz Truss was thinking with her jive at France, a couple of hustings mm. back, because part of the solution to the you know, tragedy of Channel Boat Crossings Mm. involves cooperation between Britain and France. Mm. And, you know, it, it's potentially one of the big political issues. You know, it's surely an issue that is on her mind or something that she will need to have some, you know, decide on some sort of approach to. And how is, how is just being rude to the French going to help achieve an outcome there? <laughs> That's not the outcome she was interested in when she made that remark, though, I think. You know, the outcome she was interested in is winning over the Conservative Party membership and the devil take, you know, the rest, really, I suspect. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. But anyway, OK, let's... We, so we've talked about the two halves of your book, and mm. there's not a lot we could say about the cover of the book. So maybe I should ask about... Was there anything that just surprised you? Or what you sort of felt, oh, there's a lesson there that I've learned when you sort of sat down to... Ooh. pull together and collate and digest the wisdom on you know, why um, that's, a, that's an interesting question I mean I think I think I I, I became rather more aware or, or at least reminded myself of this question of mobilization and turnout mm. you know and, and how important that was uh, and the extent to which I think the Remain campaign David Cameron in particular just completely underestimated the extent to which the the leave campaign would be able to get people who didn't normally turn out to vote to turn out to vote and by the same token in reverse actually the the vote in some of the larger urban areas which tended to 
obviously favour the Remain side was actually quite quite low and, and and that was also the case actually in Scotland and, and Northern Ireland so when people say that Scotland and Northern Ireland for example voted for Remain rather than Leave that's true as far as David Cameron was concerned not enough people in Northern Ireland and people in Scotland voted for Remain because that you know that could perhaps just about have tipped the balance because it was such a, a, a close race and I, I, I guess I hadn't really appreciated from the outside before I really sort of dug into some of those memoirs, you know, by people like Kate Fall, who was Cameron's, you know, chief of staff, and, you know, some of the other people whose memoirs I looked at, quite how bitter was the debate internally about how they were going to handle the referendum. Obviously, you know, it didn't explode the the friendship between Osborne and, and Cameron, but, you know, Osborne was very, very clear that he felt, A, referendum wasn't a good idea, uh, B, if it was to be for collective cabinet responsibility, should not have been suspended. And C, having you know decided to fight the referendum and having decided to give people their head, that actually Cameron then needed to fight fire with fire. Uh, and that's something that I think Cameron clearly you know was very reluctant to do, and and in some ways fought the the referendum with one arm tied behind his back, simply because he believed in all probability he would win it. He wasn't absolutely sure, but he thought he would win it and thought that his main task would therefore be to put the Conservative Party back together again and therefore didn't want to you know, create such bad blood that it would be very difficult to do so. And, and as a result, in some ways, you know, allowed Johnson and allowed others to attack him without attacking them back. And I think that did make a difference. But of course, you can also argue that had he done so, you know, it would have reflected badly on him. It would have, you know, undermined his dignity as prime minister. So, you know, there are a number of yeah. counter arguments to that. But I think the argument, you know, and I'd say it wasn't a terrible argument, but it was a, it was a, you know, a very sincere argument between Cameron Osborne. I, I found very interesting. Yeah, and I, I guess that was my sort of initial impression from that the second half of the book about, you know, why that why Cameron lost the referendum was that you go through quite a few mistakes that he made, or at least you go through quite a few decisions that were taken that given that he lost, we pick as mistakes. But in almost all cases, there's a really good set of arguments both ways. And it's, I mean, maybe in that sense, he was just to an extent unlucky in that in a series of close calls, each time, you know, he went for the thing that turned out to be disadvantaged. But I do just wonder whether to an extent we're retrofitting the result onto those difficult decisions and had the result gone differently I don't think it would have been that difficult to explain the different result I'm not I, I wonder if if those individual decisions really were quite as important I mean in one sense when it's a close result you know you can look at en- almost anything and say well oh if that had been different that might have been enough but but I, I do wonder whether we're just placing a bit too much weight on those on those factors yeah I mean I think that's always a, a, a you know a a problem isn't it you know if the thing that you're trying to explain is a rather than b <laughs> then inevitably you're going to concentrate on the things that you know you feel i'm always a. reminded yeah. of the debate there used to be about the growth in the british population during the industrial revolution or in the early stages of the industrial revolution and basically whether that was caused by decline in deaths or rise in births and i'm probably going to get this the wrong way around but as i recall for a long time decline in deaths was the sort of the favorite theory until there was a massive bit of really detailed statistical research that showed, no, it wasn't, it's not about deaths, it was Mm -hmm. about births. 
Mm. And then all of these really plausible arguments about things like the spread of iron beds, which were therefore, you know, less likely to spread disease, etc., which had been rolled out so convincingly, all had to be sidelined. It turned out, actually, no, that wasn't what happened. It's, and and obviously, this is the both the attraction and the frustration of history, isn't it? Is, yeah. is it, yeah. it only gets to run once, so we can never yeah. quite be sure. Probably. Yeah, but I, I do I do think your point about the closeness of the race is very very important. I mean, I do think in you know had had this ended up being you know seventy thirty or sixty. 40. I mean, I, I think a lot of this would have been interestingly interesting, but, you know, largely kind of irrelevant. The whole thing could have been put down to these kind of larger structural forces. But I think when things are so close, you know, a, a variety of you know things, had they gone differently, might have made a difference to the result. But the variety is important there. You know, what what I, I don't think anyone can do is suggest that there's one silver bullet explanation for this. You know, it is that's why you know in the in the second half of the book there are you know sort of eight or nine explanations. Yeah. You know, and it's only when you sort of put all those together that you get to the you know the the, the reasons why the referendum was lost. So, I mean, so for example, a lot of people think that Boris Johnson made the difference, and it's you know I've I've been in presentations by academics that say you know it's it's fifty two forty eight. Boris Johnson probably made four percent five percent difference. Boris Johnson was the reason, you know, that that Remain lost the referendum. And, you know, there is a plausible argument for that. But I think probably you need a whole bunch of, of reasons really to provide a, a convincing explanation. But even then, you know, you're not going to be able to write sort of Tolstoy and total history and, 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 yeah. and come up with everything. Yeah. And, and I, th- I mean, the Boris Johnson argument, I think, is quite compelling, it seems to me, for... Because, you know, the the counterfactual is that Boris Johnson decided to campaign for Remain rather than for Leave. No, he picked the he he would have he picked the other newspaper article. And so it's not just to what extent did Boris Johnson persuade people to vote Leave. It's also the opportunity cost of him not campaigning to persuade people to vote Remain, which sort of, in a way, doubles the impact. If you Yes. Yes. But also, I do think he would have had that ability you know, he has that ability to really stick the boot in while sounding quite cheerful. And that is sort of what the Remain camp needed. You know, you were saying earlier, Tim, about, you know, Cameron's unwillingness to stick the boot into the other side. You know, if you were planning out, OK, how are we going to do this? You would have thought, well, we need someone like Boris on our side in order to do that. So I I, I can, it, it seems to me quite convincing that he was yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah the other thing about Boris Johnson is of course he has this sort of boosterish optimism which mm. I think the Remain campaign really lacked and, and mm. you know it, I, I think that's a really good point about the opportunity cost to have someone of his you know cast of mind would have been really helpful I think in in that respect too so yeah I think that's important I mean also important and something I'll go into in the book and, and quite a few people you know say this in in their accounts you know, who were involved, Letwin in particular, I think makes the point that, you know, once they lost Gove and Johnson, they were in real trouble because up until that point, they thought they'd be fighting Farage and a few mm-hmm. other, you know, sort of hardline Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party. But once you've got people like Johnson and Gove who were seen to be kind of, you know, reasonable and, you know, not not nuts, as it were, you, you, you got into the situation where you had some of the messages that Nigel Farage was sending coming out of the mouths of people like Govan and Johnson and therefore rendering them far more respectable and in some senses legitimate as far as many voters were concerned. And, and I think that did make a big difference. Yeah. 
So I guess finally, if we could, we should try and end on a note that isn't about Boris Johnson. I feel, uh, <laughs> but uh, any you know, sort of any thoughts in terms of you know the Lib Dems don't really feature in your in your book, and I think I can forgive you for that because you know we are a relatively small part part of the story. I guess there's a different counterfactual if the referendum had taken place when the Lib Dems were a popular party. You know what sort of impact the Lib Dems might have been able to make overall on the result above and beyond what we were able to make and so on. But yeah, anything, any lessons you would draw for the Lib Dems from all this? I mean, that's a good question. I'll preface it by saying I do think the Lib Dems were important in the sense that had there not been a coalition, there would have been far fewer frustrated Conservative MPs because they would have been in government jobs and therefore not desperate to take it out on David Cameron um, Mm. via their Euroscepticism. So I do do think the Lib Dems made a difference indirectly. The lessons for the Lib Dems from from what happened, I mean, I guess, I mean, that's that's a difficult question. I mean, I guess I would say that, you know, given what's happened and given what happened in the referendum campaign i think it will be very very difficult to fight another referendum on this issue anytime soon and win it and indeed you know i I guess not on the european issue and it, it comes back to something we talked about before which is electoral reform is it going to be possible to get electoral reform by a referendum or are you going to have to do it some other way? And if you do it some other way, will it be regarded as legitimate? And I think um, Lib Dems need to think about how, if you know, electoral reform is, is to be uh, achieved, it can be achieved without a referendum, because I'm not sure you know, that is the way to do it. It might be the way to do it in terms of the legitimacy, but I don't think it's the way to do it practically or politically. Yeah, I mean, I think the basic problem with referendums in British political culture, at least, mm-hmm. is they are very often not decided. They, they're very often people are not voting on the question on the ballot paper. They're voting on other things. And that makes the referendum a really flawed tool. And mm-hmm. I think in countries like the US, where they, their equivalents of referendums are used so widely and you have so many of them, that does sidestep that problem very mm. significantly because mm. you've got all of these so many different ballots but in 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 the british political context i think it's fair to say that probably the scottish independence referendum was overwhelmingly mm. fought on that question mm. of scottish independence mm. but we've seen a whole you know a set of different referendums where the question on the ballot paper hasn't been the overwhelmingly dominant question that voters have been looking to yeah the problem is that makes that a really yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if the point of a referendum is to be able to settle a particular question, you know, the problem is if then people are actually asking another question when they're voting, yeah. if it becomes a very self-defeating mechanism. So, I, I, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, I was a definite believer that, you know, a modern democracy involves giving people the power to call referendums and the mm. like. And I think that's one area where my views have Mm. Have, have definitely changed. Yeah, the, pro- the problem now, of course, is that the Scottish referendum, the referendum we had on the electoral system, and of course the EU referendum in 2016 has established the idea that in order to make a big constitutional change, you need such a vote. So how you get round that, what has become, I think, an assumption is going to be a really, really interesting question. Although I, I think, I mean, the Tories have made some quite significant changes, including changes to voting systems for different bits of our political system without, you know, without go, not only without going near a referendum, you know, quite often without even having a previous manifesto commitment to point to either. And so I, I do think there is quite a lot of mileage in the, if it's in your manifesto, 
and you win under the existing rules of the game, then it's okay to implement it because that is that is you know how how the system was designed to. But yeah, I'm sure that's a debate that we will we will return to many times in the future. So huge thanks for that, Tim. I think given the length of your book, it's just possible a quick speed reader could read the book more quickly than they can listen to this podcast. I think we should set the challenge. That's your challenge, dear listener. See if you can read Tim's book more quickly. Uh, then you listen to this podcast. But I will include a link to the book in the show notes, Tim, as well as to that Michael Crick Twitter account on parliamentary selections and to the Jonathan Portes article that you mentioned. And people can find you on Twitter at Prof Tim Bale, if I remember correctly. That is correct, yes. And people can find myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. So thank you hugely, Tim, for your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Mm-hmm.